Please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ruth 3, verses 1 through 18. Please read with me the verses in bold. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. <clears throat> and she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. <clears throat> and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. <clears throat> Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So he lay at his feet until the morning, but arose at first, but could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I have that difficult task of uh, trying to figure out what that passage says. Well, let me ask this morning, uh, how do you know when someone you like is being, just, uh, is being nice to you because they're nice? Or, or and when you, uh, they are nice to you because they like you? Like, like, like you. <laughs> I know, I sound like I'm in high school. <laughs> or 
One of the most awkward moments uh, between two people is when um, they come to this place called the DTR. You've heard of this? Defining the relationship. Especially if the two have been friends for a while and they find themselves in this ambiguous, where are we in this relationship? They have a DTR. The so-called couple begin to wonder if they are a couple. Then an earnest and often uncomfortable conversation follows, which they hope will result in some clarity. How will they know for sure if they have moved up to boyfriend and girlfriend status? It's a pretty risky move. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a group, I think, that probably way past that. But if you think about it, the upside is great. If she says yes, or if he says yes, they're elated, they're ecstatic that someone so beautiful or attractive or handsome would say yes to you. But there's the downside. They might say no. Your heart is crushed and broken into little pieces, and, and there's the risk, uh, the potential of losing a friend because now the relationship is too awkward even to hang out with each other, the DTR. Well, it was the summer of 1998, and I had just met the cutest girl I have ever seen in my whole life. Granted, my whole life was just 24 years, uh, I was only 24 years old, uh, but she was spunky, uh, she was shorter than me, uh, she was witty, she was outgoing, she was generous. And she was, as I, very cute. But most importantly, she laughed at all my jokes. How does a girl like that ever like a guy like this? Well, I think I was dropping hints that I really liked her. I may not have been doing a good job. Uh, they were subtle, uh, though they were uh, definitely not smooth. Uh, but one night, I think it was at a, a church softball game. Uh, again, if you need reasons to come out to, uh, to cheer us on for our softball game. Uh, well, again, I let her borrow my blue UC San Diego crew neck sweater. After wearing it, she brought it back full of, uh, she brought it back uh, washed and folded. And along with a nicely, nicely uh, laundered sweater was a bag full of mamba candies. On a previous occasion, I had told her I like these candies, and so she went to every 7-Eleven, every convenience store that she can find, and, uh, and emptied out their mamba supply and stuffed it into this bag. I felt like it was a hint she was dropping for me. She's not here. She's in the kid's space right now, so I can say whatever story I want. <laughs> she may have a very different recollection of how things unfolded, she said she was just being nice, come on. <clears throat> but this is my version of the story and I'm sticking to it. But I think soon afterwards, we had the DTR. And I think I said something so stupid. Uh, we were both on the campus of the school we were attending and said, Karen, I'm not that interested in dating you. I kind of, um, and again, I, 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 don't, I was trying to preface to say that I'm not really interested in dating you. I'm interested in, in courting you. And she said, uh, what? 
You know, I had gave this whole spiel about how I wanted to marry her, uh, if that it wasn't just a, a, you know, a dating that was going to lead to nowhere, but I, I wanted to court her so that one day I would marry her. And, uh, and I think because she was so young, I, I think uh, she said yes. You know, I, I think, uh, I don't think she knew what she was doing. But in our story this morning, we see Ruth, at the advice of her mother-in-law, Naomi, get ready to DTR with Boaz. Ruth is about to go to this place where Boaz is, lie at his feet, uncover them, and then wait for him to tell her what to do. To be honest with you, this has to be one of the most confusing and challenging texts of this book, much less the Bible. I think at one point I had five commentaries open trying to get a grasp of what's really happening in this text and try to get to the heart of these three characters in Ruth chapter 3. It's a strange story, one that doesn't make a lot of sense, especially with our Western mindset about love and romance. It's not your traditional love story. Not sure if the story of Ruth ever makes it into Hollywood. It's hard to tell how much feeling is in the story. We have to somehow read between the lines to get a glimpse into a person's motivations and intentions and, and emotions, but that's difficult to do. There's a lot left to the imagination when we read stories like this, maybe because we've seen too many movies. But this particular story might work in Hollywood if... It's about a girl who meets a boy, or a boy who falls in love with a girl, or about great loss and tragedy that leads to great gains, or about a person who goes from nothing to everything, from rags to riches, or about a foreigner who finds acceptance in a culture other than her own. It's your classic Cinderella story but my question to you is, is that what the story here is all about? I believe there's something here that we cannot understand unless we, one, interpret some of the cultural backdrop to the story, two, define some key terms of, in the book of Ruth, and three, attempt to discover what this story, this scandalous story, tells us about the heart of God and how it points to Christ. Or it's just another fairy tale. Chapter 3 is the turning point of the whole book. It's the defining moment of the entire story. Everything that has happened to this point and all that will follow are hinged on this chapter. This event that takes place between sunset and sunrise of a single day. Now, we should give credit to Naomi for wanting to find a husband for Ruth. You may remember that the la remember last week uh, that Ruth was gleaning last week uh, that Ruth was gleaning in the fields of Boaz. But as we get to the third chapter, the harvest season is coming to an end. Uh, probably six or eight weeks have passed between uh, chapter two to chapter three. And according to Naomi, nothing has happened. Naomi apparently waited as long as she could and then decides to take matters into her own hands. She's determined to make something 
happen. A mother-in-law. So she tells Ruth, again, you'll see in the next uh, two verses, in verses 3 and 4, there's all sorts of verbs describing uh, what Ruth should do when she finds herself the threshing floor of Boaz. In verse 3, wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. And then go. And this is the strangest part. Uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Someone did that to me. I said, no, 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 no. Please don't come near my feet. It's not Naomi's greatest idea. It doesn't seem like her greatest hour. This does not seem like a wise plan. It seems like a disaster waiting to happen. Yes, there are different cultures that do things differently. There are different cultures that celebrate marriage differently. But this is not one of those things. This is not the way that the Hebrews did it. There are no occurrences of such a proposal in the Old or New Testament, this is out of the norm. One commentator says this, Naomi's plan seeks to appeal to the baser instincts and impulses of Boaz, not his higher sense of duty. Why else would there, be, uh, there need to be wine, the dark of night, and undercover, and, and I'm sorry, and an undercover encounter Naomi would have done well in modern-day advertising for she seeks to sell Ruth to Boaz the way Madison Avenue sells toothpaste or lingerie. That's what the bathing, the perfume, and the clothing is all about, not to mention climbing into bed with Boaz after his heart has been merry with wine, end quote. It's a very confusing chapter. I have read through it so many times. I read through it, and I read through it, and I read through it, and I could not fully understand what was going on. So I read through it, and then I consulted some commentaries just to make sure that I was not reading something into the text that wasn't there, that I wasn't putting my emotions or my my imaginations of what happens in movies and Hollywood movies and, and place those on these two characters of, of Ruth and Boaz. That the threshing floor means something uh, different than what I understand it to mean. Well, there is. There's lots of, of stuff to uncover in, in Ruth chapter 3. But again, I wanted to confer with uh, Robert Hubbard in his commentary on Ruth. He validates my initial impressions of the text and where he writes, Finally, the chapter teems with carefully contrived ambiguity. In other words, it's ambiguous for a reason. We're left in the dark for a reason. He says, carefully contrived ambiguity and sexual innuendo. In ancient Israel, a threshing floor, uh, threshing floor setting suggested sexual compromise. And the author packs his prose with 
erotic double entendres. He creates a strong impression that Ruth and Boaz might have had sexual relationship uh, or sexual relations that night, yet he actually never says so. Such ambiguity and suggestive language serve two purposes, Hubbard writes. First, they easily retain audience attention. Again, that's what the Hollywood movies are about. And in gripping suspense, too. Second, they thrust Ruth and Boaz into a crucible of moral choice. Will they, again, as before, live according to the ideal of hesed? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The loving kindness, the faithfulness, the steadfastness of God. And so how does Ruth get included, if you know the end of the story, in the genealogy of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, if she does what we think she does, wink, wink. That was not funny. Uh, <laughs> I got one person go, poof. <laughs> uh, how does Ruth get included in the, in the genealogy of, of Matthew if she does what we think she did? Again, I had to read this a few times over. But here is what I've discovered. How might we know that Boaz does not do what we think he does? And there are a lot of uh, evidences, I think, that support um, that Boaz and and Ruth carried themselves about with integrity. Uh, Again, I think there are many reasons, but I have jotted just three. Chapter 4 is very clear. We'll get to that next week. But chapter 4 is very clear that eventually... Ruth and Boaz have sexual relations. And it's very clear in the book of uh, Ruth chapter 4 that, again, when their marriage is consummated, again, they have a baby who will ultimately result uh, in this genealogy of Jesus. Yes, Naomi's plan seems to assume that the end justifies the means. Yes, the goal was a good one. Indeed, when what Naomi hoped to achieve is that what will ultimately happen in chapter 4, but her way of bringing this to pass is vastly different than the way Boaz chooses to accomplish this. Again, uh, the way that Naomi thinks that things will unfold is not the way that things unfold. Chapter 4 is very clear of that. Number two, I found that Boaz acknowledges Ruth as a woman of noble character. It's found there in chapter 3, He refers to her as a woman of noble character. The book of Ruth is supposed to stand in stark contrast to the book of Judges that comes right before. And again, the the author of the book of Ruth gives us some clear signals in the book that again, these two books are to be read in tandem. The book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did what they thought was right. And here is Ruth that stands in stark contrast to the waywardness of Israel, and we see Boaz and Ruth act in a manner that is of the highest integrity. The book of Ruth is supposed to stand in stark contrast because, again, when you read through the very first book of the very first chapter of the book of Ruth, the author says it's in the setting of the times of the judges. Number three, as she's there at midnight, Boaz offers a closer kinsman redeemer. 
We'll define that in a second. But fortunately, Boaz was committed to doing the right thing the right way. And this is why he refuses to become intimate with Ruth that night and why he gives the nearest kin the opportunity to do the right thing the next day. And so all the text, when you read through it, the text tells you that, again, here, Ruth and, and Boaz are not doing it the way that Naomi has planned. So the sun sets in verse 6. Ruth watches from the shadows as Boaz finally throws himself down. Uh, he's on the threshing floor and he's guarding the crops. He's sleeping there. He's had a little bit of wine. Uh, he's weary at the end of a harvest uh, day. And he, so he plops himself down next to the harvest grain, piled high on the threshing floor. And then she creeps forward, uncovers his feet. Again, it's so weird. And lays down just as her mother-in-law had advised. And then in verse 8, at midnight the man was startled. Who wouldn't be with their feet sticking out of their bed like this, I suppose. And he turned over, I can't help but smile at this point in the story. He turns over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? Dark. <laughs> and she uses this phrase, spread your wings over your servant. I'm Ruth, your servant. And again, like, like I said, it's so confusing. It's so challenging because I read through this and I go, I, I don't know what this means. Spread your wings over your servant. And all sorts of dirty thoughts come to my mind. But it's not euphemism for sleep with me. It could be, but it's not here. It can be translated, spread the corner of your garments over me. Now again, we need to be clear. She's not trying to seduce Boaz, but she is pro proposing marriage to him which is remarkable enough. The language here is used of, a, of, of God who mer metaphorically describes uh, his covenant relationship with his people Israel as a, as a betrothal, as an engagement. Uh, again, these are symbolic declarations of a husband to provide the, the sustenance of the wife. Uh, I'm sorry, sustenance for the future wife. And that's what Ruth is asking here. Let me, let me just kind of make my point here. And it says, he adds to the drama uh, even the romance of the situation, by framing her proposal in these specific terms, she's actually quoting what Brad preached last week in chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz had said that Ruth come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Not the wings of Boaz, the wings of the Lord. And now Ruth says back to Boaz, spread your wings over your servants. In other words, she's asking that Boaz be the instrument of God's covenant love towards her by fulfilling uh, his obligation to her as her redeemer. Everything now hangs in the balance. Uh, everything now hangs on Boaz's reply. And so what a relief it must have been when he deals with her act uh, actually with this gentleness and godly care. And look how he responds. First, he blesses her. He interprets her interest in him as an act of hesed, of covenant love toward him. He says she could have gone after other younger, richer, stronger men, but she wants him. And then he tells her that what he will do for her when she asks, and her heart must have uh, leapt with joy at this moment. And so instead of disaster, uh, you see God, uh, again, she sees God richly blessing her. It's wonderful. And our hearts are leaping with joy alongside her. And there's this, 
this tension that we find in verse 13. Boaz says, there is, however, a redeemer nearer than I. Well, I want to stop right there for a second and talk about this word redeemer. It's the word goel in the Hebrew. It's uh, found in chapter 2, verse 20. Um, Brad preached on this last week. But here's uh, the word goel or redeemer found something like 21 times in four chapters. 21 times in the book of Ruth. So it must mean something. There must be some significance to this important concept of redeemer. And so as I mentioned about I mentioned the, 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 the understanding of culture, in order for us to understand this story, we need to define the principle of the kinsman redeemer, that is the closest relative to someone who has died, and in this case, uh, Ruth, Ruth's husband, one of Naomi's sons, and a principle in the Old Testament that the kinsman redeemer was obligated on behalf of that family. So in the Bible, there are at least five functions of kinsman redeemer or goel. He acquires the alienated property of the kinsman. If they found themselves, for example, in financial trouble, they would have to mortgage a piece of their property or perhaps their whole property to pay for uh, this, this land of uh, their kinsmen. Uh, or there are times when he would purchase property in danger of, uh, of it being lost to a stranger. Or there was uh, times when he would redeem relatives who were reduced to slavery. Oftentimes when you were in debt, you sold yourself in, into slavery. Or uh, a kinsman redeemer would, re would avenge a wrongful death of relatives. Or in this case, he would be obligated to support a relative's widow. There's a lot going on here, but I think this is important. It doesn't make a lot of sense in our Western culture. I know Jesus talks about this uh, in the New Testament, right? Uh, when a brother dies, when someone dies, does your brother marry your, your brother's wife? Uh, there's all sorts of weird uh, Levitical laws that were there, but uh, again, the idea was that uh, it was a sense of community, a sense of belonging to a, a larger community or a communal culture, and more concerned about the welfare of the whole community than about the individual. Uh, another commentator says, you see, the function of the goel, the redeemer, is to restore society's equilibrium. And so in ancient Israel, where uh, internal tribal controls are stronger than external legal constraints, the goel functions as a restorative agent. In other words, he, he serves as this equilibrium. He, he restores equilibrium to the culture. He provides for those who uh, don't have enough. He provides for the widow and the orphan that Brad talked about last week. And so we see here uh, the character of Boaz representing the culmination of God's providence, God's grace, and God's abundance to these two destitute widows. And, he, and Ruth finds this kinsman redeemer, one whose responsibility was to act on behalf of this relative who was in trouble or in danger or in need. Boaz demonstrates that perhaps he's uh, perhaps better than any other in the Old Testament how God and the law he established expected a kinsman redeemer to respond to a relative's need. And so Boaz responded to the woman's plight with compassion, with generosity, and without delay. Again, there's a lot to unfold here, but I want to just kind of point out three very quick things. As I look at the, looked at this uh, passage here and looked at how it relates to us, there are no kinsmen redeemers that I know. But how it relates to us? 
Number one, Ruth chapter three shows us how God works through our choices to accomplish his will for our lives. You see, he used Naomi's plan. He used Ruth's courage. He used Boaz's integrity to bring about them to, a, to the brink of marriage. The sovereignty of God is, is such that, again, sometimes we make those choices, and yet in his sovereignty, he controls them. Number two, God redeems even the most unsavory of situations, the most unwise of decisions. God has a way of redeeming even the broken, our broken past to accomplish his will in our lives that bring about our redemption. Number three, God works all things together for those, uh, uh, God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for our good and for his glory. That God works through us to accomplish a greater purpose, that it may not be just about us, but it may be to accomplish something greater and far more beautiful than what we can imagine or dream. The story of Boaz and Ruth, my friends, is not really a love story at all at least in the modern sense. It's not a story about a boy who meets a girl in which they are attracted to one another, and the rest is a history of passionate hugs and kisses, life viewed through a romantic haze. The real love story in this book is not about Boaz and Ruth. The real love story is behind the scenes. It's the love of God for us. It's the love of God for straying sheep. It's a love that prevented him uh, from simply ending the world when Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3. You see, it's much more than, uh, again, uh, it's much more than a story of Boaz and Ruth, but again, it's the love that chose and called Abraham and then persisted in pursuing his rebellious offspring. It's a love that would not let them go in spite of the centuries-long history of rebellion and idolatry. The love causes, uh, uh, again, all these things to happen, again, for our good and for His glory. And that's the real love story that we find in the book of Ruth, chapter 3. That Jesus is our Goel. That Jesus is our ultimate Redeemer who cares not so much about Himself, that he would sacrificially and voluntarily take himself to the cross and be crucified there in our place. That Jesus would be our goal, he would pay the ultimate price, that he would uh, incur the expense of our debt of sin and place them on the cross for our sake, that we might know the great love of God for us.